Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. It wasn't that long ago when many Canadians felt they could trust their government to protect and promote their physical and mental well-being. After all, this promise is enshrined in Canada's Health Act, which also guarantees reasonable access to health services without financial or other barriers. One might ask the 250,000 residents of Quebec who use nicotine vaping products or the hundreds of vape shop owners and over 1,000 employees what they think about this high-minded promise to protect their well-being. Now that a province-wide ban on flavors is in force, Quebec's flavor ban and those in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and the Northwest Territories are a public health disaster for those who rely on nicotine vaping products as a tool to quit smoking. But sadly, the disaster is growing much worse now that the Ontario provincial government has announced it is accepting the federal government's invitation to join the federal excise tax program, thus doubling the excise duty on vaping products sold in Canada's largest vaping market. Joining us today to discuss these unfolding disasters is Daryl Tempest, Executive Director at the Canadian Vaping Association. Daryl, thanks for coming back on the show. Brent, thanks for having me. And as always, I want to thank you and the viewers for allowing me the opportunity. So, Daryl, let's start with the Quebec flavor ban. How much damage is it doing to Quebec vaping? Well, I think if we look at past experiences, um, and if you look at Nova Scotia, and I had the opportunity to listen to Professor Irvine uh, on your last episode and uh, really kind of understood from an economist's point of view what they saw coming. Uh, but a lot of it's kind of modeled after what we've seen in other provinces. So if you look at um, Nova Scotia, for example, you've seen uh, 85% of their businesses completely taken uh, out. So that was a safe access supply for a lot of people who used, as you know, vaping is a far less harmful alternative um, to combustible tobacco. Um, so if you look at the flavor ban in its entirety, and if you look at some of the data that's coming out, then we talk about, uh, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but we talk about Abigail Freeman's research in San Francisco. And the reason that that's so important is because on the globe, they were the first real uh, adopter of flavor bans. So what you're going to hear from a lot of uh, politicians who don't haven't taken the time to understand the issue in any way is they're going to say that this is about protecting the youth, even though every subject matter expert has come back to them that researches us in detail has said that these impacts are wrong. So we have to, or what uh, their assumptions are wrong. Sorry, Brent. Um, if they research them at all, and we can get into that from a public policy point of view and the uh, massive amount of failures, not just in Quebec, but across the country. But right now, let's just look at it from its very, very specific point of view, is that all data indicates that flavor bans equals greater smoking initiation and continued prolong, uh, prolongation of smoking rates in Canada. So who pushed this in Quebec? How did this happen? That's uh, it's a really great question, uh, Brent. Um, and you would have to ask the premier how this happened. What I can tell you is how the events um, uh, rolled out. So there was an announcement. There was an announcement in the Quebec industry in, in, in mass amounts, tried to do outreach to their government officials to talk about not only the damages to have on their business, 
but it will on their consumers and the impacts on hundreds of thousands of uh, Quebecers. At no point uh, was the engagement from the Quebec government for anyone that I talked to you uh, interested in those particular facts. The only thing they were interested in was banning flavors um, to satisfy uh, what we like to call body orgs, but uh, cancer, heart and stroke, uh, lung and um, other groups that represent nicotine free Canada, because that's one of the things you're going to see, Brent. It's not really about uh, protecting public health. It is very much about uh, fighting a war on nicotine, whether it's dangerous for society or not, is irrelevant to them. So from a Quebec government's perspective, with looking at none of the science research or um, uh, best available evidence, has determined in their mind that vaping and smoking is the exact same thing. So they're regulating it the same way. And so in their mind, the flavor ban is the same as getting rid of menthol cigarettes when it is not a comparable in any way. Daryl, in Quebec, is it a complete and total flavor ban or is there some wiggle room? I don't know about wiggle room. Uh, There isn't. I think if we look at what they've said is that it's menthol and tobacco. I really want to cover flavors for you in in a moment uh, or uh, as part of this discussion, Brent, because one of the key things is that they're all flavors, like there's this impression that we squeeze tobacco leaves into a uh, uh, into a bottle uh, and provide that to society. That is not what this is at all. Building flavors is a million different um, uh, elements that go in to create something that tastes like strawberry or tastes like tobacco. So a great example is that if you look at a tobacco flavor versus a uh, sweet flavor. I would say, you know, you could estimate 70%, 80% of the flavoring combo in tobacco is very similar to uh, a different type of product that may taste like banana or apple or uh, a nice uh, creme brulee, uh, whatever that the consumer preference is for. So it doesn't actually take out any of the harm. So the next thing would be like, well, you know, strawberry might have a billion chemicals and tobacco because it's closest to us only has one. That's not the case. I think what the challenge here is, is the government has never taken the moment, and I've been doing this for almost a decade now, Brent, um, to understand any of these elements to what they're regulating. So yeah, there's three flavors, but this is arbitrary as saying strawberry, milk, and and, uh, popcorn. It's uh, from uh, how the products are made. So uh, it was suggestions by those who didn't have any data to support what could we do to better inform, educate, and protect our youth. So they just picked the whole anti-tobacco playbook without inserting so many important points, like what's the benefit to society? How many quality adjusted years life can we save? And how do we value harm reduction in Canada versus the international pressure that happens in these types of lightning storms, where, you know, if you look at in Canada, 4,000 young people die of flavored uh, alcohol incidences in Canada. No one's died as a result of vaping nicotine in our country. Yet you don't hear about the need to get rid of all these flavored alcohols, which have caused real death and damage to our youth. But this one got caught in this media storm. So if we use that 
um, as kind of our backdrop, Brent, there's only three flea, or three flavors, but this product is so easy to make that the black market is going to eat this up. It is a massive market opportunity for them. And we can get into the complexities of the black market, but it comes back to what your question was originally, is that none of the best available science research across the globe has ever supported flavor bans, high taxation, um, uh, restricting safe supply. This is not part of the international conversation. The international uh, conversation is that all adult smokers have not been considered globally outside of what it appears to be the UK and New Zealand to a great extent. And that's what has to change in these concepts. We made thousands of calls, sent thousands of emails. There was thousands of letters sent in um, uh, to the Minister of Health with no feedback, no consideration. It was a willful, uh, a willful way to ignore what is a very large population within that province and without any real consultation um, that would have taken into account the needs of smokers. So there was absolutely no interest from public health officials and politicians in Quebec to work to maybe say mitigate some of the impact of the flavor ban, soften it up where it needed to be or so forth. They just didn't listen. And there's a group and I, I uh, the Coalition Against Tobacco. Um, and I want to kind of make this one as succinct as possible to kind of highlight what the issues were in that province and then what we're facing across the country. So the Coalition Against Tobacco in uh, Quebec uh, is funded by the government to lobby the government against vaping. What opportunities do other advocates have to bring in fresh perspectives, research experts, like even from the New Brunswick Constitutional Challenge, Brent, like you know we have some incredible ex experts that we have access to that we'd love to um, introduce to the government. All of these overtures were absolutely ignored. Daryl, we just had Dr. Michael Pesco on the show. He is a professor in economics from the University of Missouri, and we discussed a new research paper he co-authored with Dr. Abigail Friedman from the Yale School of Public Health. The paper is titled, The Unintended Consequences of Vaping Flavor Restrictions. Now, this paper and others that have recently come out show that in regions where flavor bans have been implemented, teens tend to turn to smoking exacerbating the very problem they purport to solve. What do you make of that? Uh, first and foremost, I must uh, I must say I'm a huge fan of Abigail's work. Uh, she's very balanced in the way she looks at it. It's just the facts. So she doesn't really get into vaping. She really gets into flavors. So I'll be able to use that as the context because um, we went to the e-cigarette summit in Washington, Brent, and it was all the major um, research and evidence-based organizations for vaping across the world. And the uh, FDA was there, Health Canada was there, a lot of main players in terms of North America were there when it comes to legislation. Abigail went to links to explain to all stakeholders, including, you know, uh, uh, Brian King, uh, Sonia Johnson from Health Canada, uh, that she was coming out with this. So all those government officials had this data months ago. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear because her research is very clear. Is that the thing that parents and politicians need to understand 
is that flavor bands equal more smoking initiation across all demographics. And it is clearly laid out. It's very black and white and point of a fact. All they're doing with flavor bands is increasing smoking and black market access. And that's what Abigail's research is indicating. So yeah, a lot of other experts uh, as well. I think there was four total experts on that study. Those were two of the main uh, proponents. Um, but again, San Francisco was the first uh, uh, beta test for flavor bands. So for all of those governments saying there's no data, again, I go back to if I could tell, uh, or if I could have one conversation with politicians, I would get rid of everything else and just say, you say it's for youth protection, youth protection or youth smoking goes up as soon as you do it. There are vape shops in Quebec. There was a vibrant industry there, vape shops, manufacturers, distributors. What's going to happen to all those businesses? Well, like I said, if we go back to our Nova Scotia, our Nova Scotia example, uh, I would project that 80 to 90% of those businesses will be closed within 90 days. Many have closed now, Brett. I, I'm getting emails almost daily just with shop owners um, informing me that they're closing the doors, uh, that the that the flavor ban will not allow them to serve their customers. Um, one of the saddest things I'm getting just from an anecdotal point of view is they also don't know how to tell their consumers other than to order online, which is very easy and, and uh, the government of Quebec can't stop it. Actually, interesting enough, uh, even past that is there's been a lot of articles coming out of Quebec talking about how youth have very clearly when interviewed, tell them, oh, I'll just get it online. Like this is a solution to nothing. This is a solution to allow criminals in the black market to sell at places like schools. This is a, this is an opportunity for uh, other provinces to try to serve this market, to make sure that these consumers get the products that they need to stay off of combustible tobacco which means that they're going to lose jobs and, and economic opportunity. Uh, lastly, they lose complete control over their own distribution system. So to, to your point, uh, what's going to happen to the vape shops is that they're going to close. And the only legal opportunity to get vaping products is from tobacco-based companies that mostly sell in convenience store channels. So if the Quebec government's uh, idea was to support, uh, say, like Imperial, which is Buse and, and those types of products, which also have many offices and employees within the province, then they've done a terrific job. If their policy was to look at how to reduce the harm, death, and uh, disease, and healthcare costs in their province, uh, this would be a ridiculous premise that absolutely has no basis in fact. And the, one of the last times I was on here, uh, we had already started uh, uh, some legal pathways in terms of being able to challenge this. The problem in, uh, from the Quebec group, for the most part, is so many of them were closing that to be able to fund those lawsuits is extremely difficult. And you shouldn't have to take and raise money from small businesses to sue a government to ensure that you have the right to reduce your harm, make informed decisions and stop smoking. So uh, I think that that kind of summarizes a more complex uh, view of what's happening within the province, Brent, uh, to try to give your viewers a, a good sense of the, the challenges of simply submitting best available evidence and getting a response to best available evidence. You know, Ian Irvine, professor of economics from Concordia University in our last episode, 
he made a very interesting point. You know, flavors don't seem to be a problem for cannabis in Quebec, but of course, all flavored cannabis is sold through the provincial government. Uh, it's not a problem for flavored alcohol, but all of flavored alcohol is at some point sold, you know, through the provincial government. So maybe the issue here is that uh, nicotine vaping products, because it's dispersed across a commercial industry of vibrant small business owners, maybe part of the disgust that Quebec politicians have for vaping is rooted uh, in the business model. One of the main things that I've learned as part of this journey um, was prior to vaping, I didn't know the amount of, uh, of disgust that people had in this country for smokers. I never once had considered myself as kind of like fringe of society. Um, I started nicotine products like most people when I was in my early, early teens. Um, and, uh, a lot of the adults around me, I mean, I'm a little older, Brent, I'm almost 50 now. Um, but a lot of the adults around me, they all smoked when I was a kid, it was normalized. It wasn't an issue. What we're seeing now is even with the amount of misinformation that's being given to kids in our schools currently, where it's like popcorn lung, let's just talk about popcorn lung. There can't be a politician out there in Canada right now that doesn't understand popcorn lung is not a thing unless they've never read one of my emails. This is one of the over 10 years, one of the things that we really just continually reinforce with uh, politicians all the time. My kids are all learning about popcorn lung and vaping in their schools. Okay, So I'm not going after the education system or anything else. I'm saying that was um, what I've been able to tell was some really, really um, uh, good things that came out of it, which was kids coming home and saying, I don't want to vape. My kids came home and said, I don't want to vape. They heard all these scary things. And that's what happened with smoking. Remember, Brent, in the 80s? Like, it was just suddenly society started to really embrace the fact that this is going to kill a lot of us. And I find it interesting because uh, over the past 48 hours, some really good details come out in Canada about smoking or cancer rates going down. And we can try to say smoking rates have gone down in this country like crazy with the advent of vaping. It's a million Canadians. It's a million Canadians who chose vaping over smoking, whether it was the vast majority of them, Brent, that were former smokers, or, you know, I'm not going to pretend that some people are just picking up a vape and using that as their first initiation with nicotine. But what they're not doing is smoking something that absolutely gives cancer to one and two. If we look at all the positive data that's happened in our country since the advent and adoption of vaping, and it's completely ignored while we've had gums and patches and everything else for years, Brent, like before my actual memories. So as a young guy, like I remember kids or adults talking about patches and and, and other NRT products. This is this once twice as successful. So I think that the hatred extends beyond vaping. It's almost like if you're alcoholic or if you have problems with opioid abuse and everything else, that there is a system of support and care in Canada. I hear about opioid crises a lot. All I hear about vaping is the same stat of percentage of experimentation from 2018, from interview to interview to interview, without covering any of the aspects of the positive developments that uh, vaping has brought to Canadian society. And it's perpetuated by prohibitionists such as uh, Andrew Cunningham from cancer. Rob Cunningham. Oh, Rob Cunningham, thank you. I've heard that a bunch of the vape shops in Quebec might be considering, you know, reclassification into convenience stores. Um, what would be the impact of that? 
Well, it's a unique uh, situation in Quebec. So let me get through that part first is that under the old, uh, well, it's still there other than the flavor ban, but there's three types of licenses in uh, Quebec. One uh, is for vape shops, one is for convenience stores, and then they have one in between, which is a hybrid um, uh, type of environment. Uh, so they're flipping to that. And it's been mentioned a bunch in the media um, because it shows that the, uh, again, it reinforces that these policies aren't thought out. So what a bunch of the shops there are selling water. And in that water, you get an opportunity to buy some flavoring for it. Water soluble that goes into water. What is in all vaping products? Water soluble food flavoring. And it's through the media reports is that even the government there is like, yeah, listen, we know everyone's going to buy it online. And we know that, um, uh, that they're going to sell water soluble flavoring uh, as much as they can and that the black market is going to increase. But as long as people don't get mad at us on the local six o'clock news, that's as far as the depth that we want to get to in the issue. So they acknowledge just from their own limited view what the uh, very serious limitations are of this policy. What they didn't go into was the very real threats to society. Because the first kid, and I mean this, and I hope every government listens to this one statement. If there is a kid who is hurt by an illegal vaping product in this country, that government is going to be in very serious challenges as it relates to how they looked at this policy. Because that uh, health issue is most likely going to come from the black market. Like, I can't tell you what everyone puts in the product and recalls and things like that. It happens over pharmaceuticals, food, you know, um, even things like pillows. But in this case, it's so very obvious because we have the pathway that happened in the States with the THC cards. But where do you see that acknowledged by any policy by government that we think that this will ensure that the black market doesn't thrive and puts dangerous products into our communities? Yeah, you might be a little bit more hopeful than me on that. I think that they will be able to effectively blame the vaping industry that doesn't even exist legally in the province. What vaping industry? So you look at taxation across these major provinces, you look at the flavor bans across uh, several provinces in this country. They keep telling everyone that the vape shops will be around and they will be age restricted forever and ever and ever on tobacco, mint, menthol, except for every time they go to tobacco, mint, menthol, all those age restricted stores close. So either they're willfully like the um, uh, like a lot of the anti vaping advocates, they willfully ignore and misinform the um, uh, misinformed society, or even maybe more scary, Brett. They didn't comp or uh, they didn't look into that issue at all. But they just decided this policy runs well. It'll get me really good positive press here into the fall. I'm really my mandate. So I'm going to show in Quebec that I'm taking action to protect youth and do it on the back of a napkin in two weeks and, and impact 25% of when it comes to non-tobacco sales at an estimated $1 billion. So that's $1 billion worth of revenue at 25% of market share within the province, 30 on the outside of products that are keeping people off of smoking, getting them out of our healthcare system. You're talking about um, a province. And if you look at the uh, uh, 
what Health Canada put out for youth vaping rates, and I'm sure we'll get into this one soon too, but let's look at it in this context. Every, every province except for one that has flavor bans and excessive taxation have the highest youth experimentation rates. In the provinces that don't have such regulations, they have some of the lowest exp uh, experimentation rates from youth in this country. So from a public policy point of view, does it not make sense to say more regulation puts my youth at more risk and that's what all the data tells me because it's what all the data tells me. Well, to be quite frank with you, I'm really tired of talking about youth. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. this whole, I mean, this is fun. But what we're talking about here, Brett, is forget the youth in terms of what we've dealt with over the many, many years that we've uh, interacted, talked, shared, uh, not only just uh, data, but stories about successes of friends that we know that got off of smoking. So let's put the youth in the context of public policy. Because I think a lot of viewers would like to hear, well, you just tell them, right? You know how many times I've heard that? Daryl, 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 it's important to note that here, look, they're coming for your rights if you're a 22 year old and decide yes. to pick up a nicotine vaping product and use it recreationally. They're coming for you and those yep. rights. So this has nothing to do now with teens and, and underage people anymore. The government has switched and so has the media to being focused on now the age of majority people, 20% of youth between 20 to 25 have decided to pick up a vaping product. Why should we care about that? Those are adults in a country where vaping is legal. And by the way, you know, in the last four or five years, the you know, federal government has quite happy having anybody who's age of majority, who's never smoked a joint before to pick up a cannabis habit. So uh, how come those how come that data is not being called out with the same venom that this is? Well, um, it would be amazing. You would be amazed of how much data is provided to government officials, but it doesn't have the pressure. So you and I have talked about campaigns a lot over the years, right? Like the community, the vaping community took action when it came to the federal government. The community uh, uh, did take action in Quebec, whether it was. Uh, accepted or not. New Brunswick did. Nova Scotia was very active, like politically, getting to their MLAs, you know, uh, really opening up the doors. That still didn't change anything. That's why the New Brunswick case is so important when it comes to flavor bans, is we got to get that one through. Because this is as far as we've ever been as a, as a community, Brent. You know, we're at the King's Bench now. Uh, depending on how that goes, there will be applications most likely to the Supreme Court. And that's something that you and I have talked about a great deal because it resets how you view uh, this important category. I think the reason that I brought it up because I'm a sick and tired, if it was just me and you talking, I would say to you, I don't agree with you either. But in my chair and in my desk, my job is to make sure to put together the pieces in terms of public policy arguments. And the public policy argument here and it should scare a lot of us, is that there was no, absolutely no research done on such a major decision. What other decisions were made that had absolutely no backing to why it was implemented? So again, it goes to the a lot of the failures in public policy that we're seeing, not just in underdeveloped countries, but even in G7 countries like Canada. So how big is Quebec to the total Canadian vaping industry. Is it going to, is this going to have an impact 
Oh, this is going to have a massive impact. Um, so right now, the uh, Canadian market is largely considered to be around $1.8 billion. So that would include all convenience stores, vape shops, uh, tobacco uh, uh, tobacco companies, and independent vape manufacturers and importers. Again, they make up about 25% of the total vaping market. I think it's the numbers, though. That's 250,000 people vaping. One million people, quarter of the market, should be close to around 250,000. How do you remove a harm reduction product from 250,000 citizens in a country the size of Canada? Forget a province the size of Quebec. Right? And so if you look at Quebec has high smoking rates, they have high youth initiation rates when it comes to vaping. And remember, you can't you can't get anything online or any of those things in Quebec, and it still went the opposite. So I think when it comes to uh uh, when it comes to public policy and we look at the province of Quebec, there's no way to not say disaster for our healthcare system, costs and deaths. It's a disaster for our youth. It's a disaster for their economy. It's such a huge hit. And um, they absolutely had no engagement um, at a real level. Was there some phone calls and lip service, Brent? Yeah, for sure. Was any of it impactful? Nothing. Daryl, let's turn now to the news from Doug Ford's progressive conservative government that the province of Ontario will be joining the federal vaping excise tax program. Was this a surprise to the Canadian Vaping Association? It was It was never anything that was indicated to us. I would start there, Brent. Um, considering the global landscape of vaping, it's not a surprise. Uh, taxation has been hotly debated. Outside of... Uh, uh, consumption tax, um, HST here uh, in the province of Ontario, uh, there was no specific taxation really that was uh, around um, uh, around nicotine vaping. Um, the problem is with the output. So um, engagement with Ontario has been very high. I think they're going to look at this at great depth. I don't think that they're just jumping off a cliff, Brent. So to give a lot of people some good hope here, this is going to be a very purposeful process. You also have certain amendments and changes that have to require at the federal level in order to marry uh, those two programs. So it's going to take a, it's going to take some time. In the fall economic statement that just released a couple of weeks ago, when they announced that they were joining the program, the Doug Ford progressive conservative government said they started it off by saying with research that basically said that teen vaping leads to teen smoking. And then another point that they then made is that regardless of age, one in six people who are non-smokers who vape will turn into smokers. And this is it, it's just so mind-boggling that they would just use those kinds of stats to justify this tax, especially if, if this government is knowledgeable about the vaping industry. I knowledgeable is um is a is a low bar compared to most governments. I, I would have to say that not as a criticism of the Ford government, but just the overall understanding of uh, public policy around vaping in its entirety. Uh, what I will tell you there is that most likely that uh, verbiage was given to them by a trusted source, uh, Brent, and one not just trusted by government, but I would think trusted by society. Um, 
where I really want to give hope is that when we address those statements by this government, as we continue to address those statements, it wasn't radio silence like it was in Quebec. It was acknowledgement. Oh, that's interesting. So what was the other research that you think you could point us to so we can understand why those aren't the facts? So you can see the difference, even in my energy from when we first talked about Quebec, where I'm like, Brent, like, we, we will all move together and try to address this, but I held little hope. In our context with Ontario, I hold a lot more hope um, that this government is going to go through its analysis prior, because one of the opportunities that can come out of this um, uh, lack of understanding about the impacts of taxation on smoking rates and on this industry is that given the opportunity to work with Doug Ford's government and given the opportunity being successful to have them help us engage with the federal government and other provinces could create an opportunity to have a far more even legislation and regulation across this country so that entrepreneurs can invest their capital to make sure that consumers have access to these products to reduce their harm. So in a nutshell, Brent, I, I feel far more like I have a real opportunity to address the weaknesses in, in their statement as opposed to legislation that they passed at this point. So to their statement, I really feel that there's going to be real interaction and real engagement from the Ford government. Well, let's hope that there is. Um, here are the implications of the tax. If So you've got the federal tax and you take, say, a regular 30 mil bottle of e-juice that might have sold you know, before the federal tax for 20 bucks, uh, you add $7 of tax into that. And then th that bottle is $27. Now, the way this will all work out is if Ontario joins that program, it'll now be $14 in tax in the bottle around $34. And then of course you still have the provincial sales tax on top of that. So something that could have been $20 is likely going to be 40. I mean, how is that affordable? And isn't it getting close to the cost of smoking? Um, it is. Um, it's closer to the cost of smoking when it comes to uh, two mil uh, capacity and under. Um, when you look at how much uh, vaping product you get versus how much you smoke. But here's my question uh, that I'll give you, Brent, or make it more of a statement. In Ontario, you can go into a shop, a uh, convenience store, and you'll see a big board. And it'll give you an uh, estimated price on premium cigarettes and an estimated price on um, value cigarettes. So apparently strawberry vaping products is an enticement to kids to vape. But saying, you know, uh, we have uh, really inexpensive brands of cigarettes for uh, for people to uh, to consume. But that has absolutely no appeal to youth, right? They don't walk into convenience stores right above the candy bar uh station and look up at the at the clerk do they so to kind of kind of really dig into uh, uh uh to your point is that it's still an issue where vaping is considered smoking because in that they have taken the steps that they thought were important which was uh to tax it to decrease the adoption because in their mind Every new, I'm not saying in the government of Ontario, but much of the feedback I've gotten across this country is that as soon as they buy a vape, they're going to smoke. That is so clear in their mind. It's so ingrained and it's been 
told to them every time they turn on their evening news or have a conversation with a parent who's misinformed in their communities. So it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of information uh, when you're just trying to get through. So um, as it relates to the damage that taxation will do at a $35 bottle, is that would you buy, would you be willing to ask the question when you're buying a $15 package of cigarettes? Hey, can you tell me about that $35 one that comes with, you know, now a mod and uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, different heads that you have to fill, or are you just going to grab that? Uh, you're going to grab that, uh, that packet of cigarettes. Convenience stores play an important role in this because it is the first um, place where people go to initiate when they buy cigarettes. The vast majority of Canadians that are over like the age of 40 think that vaping is just as dangerous as smoking brand. And we're perpetuating that through these types of policies, which keeps them smoking longer. So it just, that's the circle and there's no way out of it unless uh, we convince the politicians. The media in my mind is done. Um, they're not going to report on the positive side of vaping. They're just not. Daryl, for our viewers, they, they hear about this New Brunswick uh, legal matter, uh, but they might not know much about it. Quickly tell us what exactly is the industry trying to achieve and what's the update? Um, so uh, very succinctly, what we're trying to achieve is a reversal of the flavor ban, not only for New Brunswick, but, but to protect flavors for adult smokers for generations to come. That is our only goal. The update is we just finished discoveries and uh, talking with legal representatives uh, that are through those discoveries and, uh, and disclosures, are very confident in our case. And the reason is, is because it would appear that due diligence on developing the policy to why they could justify flavor bans is not there. So ultimately that's for a judge to uh, to rule on. Um, but I think that the, the key is, is that I am very surprised, even me having doing this as long as I am, the lack of any, due diligence to the policy. They literally just decided to do it. I can't tell your, your audience anything other than that. And it's not that I'm withholding, right? It's that I literally cannot figure out one single thing other than the surveys within the province of youth experimenting with this pro uh, product, which we can all agree on that that's a thing, um, that they did anything else with it. They literally just took a bunch of information from cancer and heart and stroke and put it in a file. That's it, from what I can tell. So um, that case will be heard next year. And we're hoping for very early next year, Brent, but it would have great ramifications for vaping and vaping uh, rights for harm reduction in Canada. But I think it will also be very much, uh, very much um, used around the world because of the experts that are there. So Abigail will be there talking about her research. Warner, as you know, uh, and many other leaders uh, that talk about the facts of vaping and its impacts in society. Uh, nothing uh, that would be uh, uh, moral panic or prohibitionist in nature. They, that's not what they're there for. They're there to literally tell you this is better than this because of these reasons. And that's it. And the province didn't go through that. So I'm feeling very comfortable. And I think it's going to change a lot when it comes to uh, uh, Quebec and Ontario, where they're going to see that come out of that process. 
So a win in New Brunswick then would affect all the other provinces that have engaged vapor ban, uh, uh, flavor bans. Absolutely. And it's going to not only open up more pathways for greater advocacy and stronger advocacy, but also opens up some really great pathways for challenging uh, some of these existing uh, laws in, in other courts. So we, you know, there's nothing about a uh, King's Bench win which is where we are now. So that's um, uh, not appeals court, but it's the step kind of before the Supreme Court, uh, Brent, for those of your listeners that don't know that portion of it. Um, that trial will take like 20 days and then we wait for the judgment. After that judgment, you seek appeal to go to the Supreme Court and then they will, uh, they'll if they approve that, then you're applying right to the Supreme Court. So we could see a Supreme Court um, uh, trial on vaping within, say, 24 months. Daryl, last question regarding Ontario and an excise tax. If you could ask the Ontario government one question, what would that question be? I would ask the Ontario government to not answer my question, but to ask another one. And I would ask them to call finance department at the federal level and ask them what, if any, data they have to support their tax policy. Where did they come up with the number? Where did they come up with the percentage? What was the risk assessment? What was it gonna do to consumers? What is the full process that they went through when when the federal government didn't talk about vaping taxation? And remember, it jumped out of nowhere. Brad, you remember that interview? I didn't even know. I was like, man, it just popped up on the screen just like it did for everyone else. And I would ask Ontario to ask that question because if it's one thing I believe in this uh, premier in Ontario is that if it doesn't pass um, a, uh, a common sense test, he really pushes back. I don't think he thinks that there is any pushback against the tax. I think for him, it's all flavors in his mind, considering his interaction, and that's the conversations that we've had. So I really believe that this is this is a real opportunity as much as it's scary. Uh, for our stakeholders, for the businesses, for all the families that rely on us. Um, but you, we can't control that process. But what we can control through asking great questions like you just asked is to show them why we see it the way that we do. And if we can win that one with a couple of key influential people in a, in a government like that, that's mostly operated under that guise. Um, it creates the, the best opportunity. So I'm going to give one pitch here when it comes to taxation in Ontario, Brent, I hope you don't mind, is that if you're a consumer or a shop owner or an importer or a distributor, or if you touch the vaping industry and you're concerned about this tax and you live in Ontario, please send me a note at daryl at uh, the cva.org so I can connect you with your elected official. Um, it had, we had the most scale on the federal one and we had the best results when we did the federal outreach. So I'm not here to drive it. I'm here to make sure that you get connected, help you with any of the science, the research, anything that, that you would like to, uh, to present to your elected official. But it's really, um, I reinforce this every time. Um, I need the consumers to ask those questions too. Why are you doing this to me? And it will grow. 